Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Channing. You're about to take a voyage in a time warp of sorts where we explore topics covered in the lifespan of this show. Some are fun and funny. Others are thoughtful, inspiring, and maybe even sad. But let's start with a fun one. Host Nora Flaherty has a Fordham conversation with Assistant Professor of Communication and Media, Jonathan Gray. The two discuss how a popular cartoon has made its way into academic circles. So why write about The Simpsons? I would be lying if I didn't admit that a large part of it was because I love The Simpsons um, and watch huge amounts of it. And so I think everyone who is a television studies academic we all play this game of trying to come up with smart reasons for why we love the things that we do. And so The Simpsons was, was part of the reason there. I, I think a large part was I was often amazed at how The Simpsons would talk about things that you just wouldn't hear other television programs talk about so that like it would make fun of advertising and do so in a way that really called advertising to task. You have the the character of Kent Brockman, who's the newsman, um, and he makes fun of the way in which the news was told. And I really think that The Simpsons not only was an important program in and of itself, but it spawned a whole lot of other programs. So that, you know, first South Park, King of the Hill. But now if you look at look to The Daily Show or The Colbert Report, what you're finding is is programs that I, I think were made possible by the kind of tone that The Simpsons set. And so I, I saw The Simpsons as not only important in and of itself, but something that, that sort of spawned um, imitators. And, and so it was sort of, you know, the, the start of something new in television. We interrupt this cartoon for a special report. <gasps> Someone found my keys. Kent Brockman at the Action News Desk. A massive tanker is run aground on the central coastline, spilling millions of gallons of oil on Baby Seal Beach. Oh, no. It'll be okay, honey. There's lots more oil where that came from. Why is it so popular? It seems like there are so many weird jokes. There are so many parody elements in it that a lot of people might not find funny, but yet everyone watches The Simpsons. If you want to engage with it purely as a sort of mindless cartoon, you can. And it's it's well drawn. It's it's amusing. But then it has this whole extra level. And I think it's also been very successful worldwide because it, although it, it it's in, I think it's 60 or more countries, it's not a program that does what so many other American programs do, which is tell you why America is so, so fantastic and why everything in America is working perfectly. It makes fun of America. And so I think internationally that's one of the reasons it's done well, too. Certainly the audience research that I conducted, a lot of the non-Americans were saying that they loved how Homer was a sort of a parody of the modern American and Springfield was a parody and a, a satirical attack on small-town America. Uh, so it sort of opens itself up in so many different ways to so many different kinds of viewers. Marge, can't we get some clear plates? I can't see the TV. Are there groups of people who don't like The Simpsons because of the way that it makes fun of America? Well, that, I mean, that's what's interesting. I haven't heard of people who, who feel that uh, that they don't like The Simpsons be, because of that. I think in the early days, there were many people who felt that The Simpsons was a bad program because of BART. Certainly in its early days, it was marketed almost as the BART show. And BART, as this rude kid, disturbed a lot of Americans. The great commentary was from uh, George Bush Sr. and his wife, who campaigned uh, around The Simpsons and talked about how we needed a nation closer to the Waltons than The Simpsons. 
And Bart was certainly at the, the middle of a, this big moral panic about, you know, what was happening to the family and the nuclear family. And the Simpsons seemed to be ruining all that. Uh, the funny thing is, is 10 years on, there's so few nuclear families at the center of uh, TV shows sometimes that uh, The Simpsons is now sort of flipped and people now love it for being one of the last bastions of a sort of good old sitcom. And so whereas you had, you know, George Bush saying that he didn't like it, 10 years or, you know, 15 years ago, you now have Tony Blair saying that he watches it all the time. You have the Archbishop of Canterbury giving it probably the best endorsement it's ever received, which is that it's on the side of the angels. Oh my goodness, kids, Homer, we're late for church. I'm glad I dressed last night. Oh, I'd love to go with you, honey, but I got a lot of work to do around the bed. Homer, the Lord only asks for an hour a week. In that case, you should have made a week an hour longer. I think whenever it does criticize, it criticizes in a playful way. So it's hard for people to get too offended by it. So I, I, I don't. I think that's why you don't find too many people worrying about its quote anti-Americanism. Partly because within the frame of America, people probably look at it and think, oh, you know, it's just making fun of Middle America. It's only outside of America that people see it as making fun of all of America. That was host Nora Flaherty and Fordham's assistant professor of communication and media, Jonathan Gray, discussing The Simpsons' influence on academia. On this week's Fordham Conversations, we're looking back at some of the many topics covered in the lifespan of this show. Now we hear from Mary Wilson, who has an insightful conversation with Fordham Associate Professor of Law, Zypher Teachow. The two discuss how the Internet will force colleges to change their business model. There is a breeziness about Teach Out. She's got a thin scarf looped around her neck. Her bangs keep pitching forward. She has the sun-flushed, lightly lined skin of a runner. She's run several marathons on the East Coast. But Zephyr Teach Out speaks with the force of a great gale, ready to blow the roofs off ideas that haven't been weatherproofed for the information age. I'm a hobo, Teach Out jokes, nodding at all the empty space of her office. It's here that she printed out the op-ed she had published in the Washington Post some three weeks prior to our talk. To refresh her memory, she said, as to the argument she had made, that the Internet will force colleges to change their business model, just as it's forcing newspapers to change theirs. Well, both universities, and colleges in particular, and newspapers have traditionally relied on selling to put it crudely, information that's hard to come by. Um, But in both cases, you see these institutions which depend upon people paying them to get access to knowledge, which they wouldn't have on their own. The internet really changes how accessible information is. Sitting at home alone, you can learn an enormous amount without paying anyone. So this, so the internet is going to bust open the business model because um, it allows me a way to bypass the university, whether I want a degree or whether I'm just curious and, and crave information. There's hundreds of reasons people go to college, but you can crudely uh, divide them into two categories. One, uh, the craving for knowledge, and two, the desire for a degree to earn more money, have higher status, get a better job. But if you're deeply curious right now, you do not have to go to school. We've already seen this curiosity show itself as MIT has put a lot of its courses online and people around the world have greedily watched the lectures, asked questions, made corrections. There's this extraordinary craving for knowledge which you can see being met 
without any of them having to pay to watch the lectures. The second category, where students go to college in order to get a degree to make more money and have higher status, is actually probably the larger motivator right now. That's, I think, where you'll, you'll see even greater pressure on contemporary colleges. Online colleges are already cheaper, and my uh, prediction is that they're going to get much cheaper. So this is what the, you think the future looks like for students. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for professors? My prediction is that 15 years from now, 20 years from now, as more and more students take all or part of their classes online, colleges will slow their hiring or stop them, stop the hiring, increasingly rely on adjuncts, which is already happening, increasingly rely on professors who do not get offices, but instead work from home, answering questions, holding seminars entirely online, radically cutting the cost of having a professor. So what does this mean for the faculty? The faculty no longer meet each other in the hall, have coffee together, have faculty colloquium. Second, they may have higher course loads. Do you kind of picture like the future, <laughs> the, the internet pioneer of the future will be a bootstrapper, will be a be a very independently minded, motivated person because that's what you have to be to succeed. Yeah. Because you can't rely on the conveyor belt of the class in which you were born. Yeah, I think that's right. Because I do have this dystopic vision of the great successful people and the rest, and most of the rest of us choosing to play World of Warcraft. So faced with the internet alone in your room, it's hard not to choose World of Warcraft, which is a very, very popular multiplayer game. <laughs> <laughs> which many people are choosing, mind you. And I think the real threat to education is actually entertainment, much as the real threat to news is actually entertainment. Because as humans, we're drawn to lights and flashes. It's, it's actually like a drug to be able to play these games and to get that stimulation. Where I end up looking at this dystopic part, this sort of negative vision of the future, is saying, okay, how do we early in life help support all of us, not just the motivated ones, such that we develop habits that will keep our minds open, develop habits of empathy, develop habits of learning. So primary and secondary education then become even more important. And the public nature of pr primary and secondary education, where there are these 12 years where we can do everything we can to support lazy, confused, bored, normal, <laughs> kids in developing habits that will serve them later when they're confronted with World of Warcraft or a great MIT lecture about um, physics. That was host Mary Wilson and Professor Zypher Teachout discussing how the internet will revolutionize the traditional education model of colleges. I'm Robin Shannon. Next on this Fordham Conversations recap, my conversation with Fordham professor Chris Toulouse, who wrote a ghost story of sorts called Whatever Happened to Zachary. It's based on his own dynamic, intelligent, and imaginative son Xander, who was killed in a bicycle accident. I wrote the first book to give it as a thank you gift to people who have been very kind to us in the wake of the tragedy. And I knew they weren't going to read it because it was too much because yeah. it's very heavy and they're getting over the loss of a very dear little boy and a friend. 
Uh, and so I thought I'd put the illustrations in so they could flick through it and see what it was about that way. <laughs> now, in the book, Whatever Happened to Zachary, Zachary was in love with riding the subway. And uh, I think your son Xander, he, if I'm correct, rode almost every subway line in New York oh, City. Yeah. Is that true? Well, there's a subway map on the back of the book which I comes that. from his station names. It's actually my layout. But, yes, he was upset. He was one of these little boys. And they're not that rare who is crazy about the subway system. And he rich, literally did ride through every single station on the system to the end of all the lines, which is what brought us up to the Bronx on many occasions. And I got a chance to view some of your video blogs. And your son seemed like a, a really, and I told you this earlier, a really intelligent, articulate, kind little boy. And and I also uh, read that he used to come and sit in on your classes. Yes, he was well known <laughs> at Lincoln Center. And he would come and um, take attendance and introduce the videos and make sure people had signed the sheet. And he also led my field trips uh, as, a, as an urbanist in the political science department. I do trips to Roosevelt Island and Battery Park City. And we also go across the uh, Hudson to Jersey City. And he led those trips, quite literally. He would um, bark at students. And he was considerably less forgiving than his father about <laughs> student lateness. I was always amazed they even turned up on a Saturday on their own time. But... He would berate them for being late. <laughs> um, and also, uh, you said you used to introduce, um, or Xander, rather, used to introduce some of your field, field trips. Tell me about the Jersey City field trip. That's the one where we go to a, a World Trade Center and get on the path, and I take them out, and we look at that cluster of uh, office buildings and apartment buildings. And that was the one where, rather than going to a central point like Times Square and sending them away and having them come back, sign in and sign out, um, I would actually go with them and conduct a tour. But there were times when he would mimic me. And I remember one classic occasion we're on the Hudson Bergen Light Railway and he starts talking to the car about what they can see at either <laughs> side of there. And over here, you'll see Target. Here we are at Hoboken Station, the last stop on our trip. Get your cameras ready. The station is very beautiful. You can get New Jersey Transit from here, but you can also get the PATH train to 33rd Street. And you also get a ferry from Hoboken to Battery Point City. There's lots of choices. And the students, it was so, what was so funny is the students were a little embarrassed because, you know, they was he like a, a little teacher. And then when he finished, uh, it was the passengers who broke into a round oh. of <laughs> But I was tried to get him comfortable in front of audiences. Yes. So that was the and he seemed very comfortable in front of audiences from the blog postings I saw. Oh yeah, he was the videos. Uh, he was. Um, I made them in order in the last year of his life in order to have something to show the students in, the, in mostly to make them buy the tickets properly on the path and on the on the Hudson Bergen Light Railway. But they became um, a way to. Uh, uh, look back on who he was, yeah. uh, and so that uh, uh, I have had people tell me and mail me that never met him, that they have gotten to know him by seeing the fragments that are left on that page. That's what so I feel. I'm pleased about that. I wanted through the the books to give um, uh, uh, the, to share his example, as it were. I mean, he's not always a completely good kid. In the second book, he's hell in wheels to get up in the morning, much <laughs> as he was in real life. That was Fordham professor Chris Toulouse. Stay with us. More Fordham Conversations is ahead.
New York is a city of countless discoveries. You'll find surprises just about everywhere, at museums, in office towers, parks, and even in restaurants. Hi, I'm George Boldarki. On this week's Cityscape, we'll revisit some of our favorite finds as we ask you to find some money in your pocket for Cityscape during your fall fun drive. That's Cityscape this morning at 7.30, right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV. This week, we're listening to clips from some previous Fordham conversations, including this one from December 2008 with host Nora Flaherty. For a few terrifying days, Georgia was at the top of the news 24 hours a day. But then, thousands of displacements and hundreds of deaths later, the armed clash between Georgia and Russia was over. Not, though, before we'd heard the phrases World War III and Russian invasion bandied around enough to reawaken some of our worst Cold War fears. But what actually happened this summer? Beth Noble covered Russia for CBS News and other news outlets for almost two decades. And although she's now teaching journalism at Fordham, she was called back during this summer's conflict. Okay, let's just start with the basics. What happened this summer between Russia and Georgia? What actually happened in August is that there was a very short little war between Georgia and Russia. And uh, the Georgians sort of say, we didn't start this. But having covered it for CBS, I think most people agree that the first shots here were fired by the Georgians, that they attacked um, a town that's inside of Georgia in a region called South Ossetia. The Georgians seem to have attacked first and the Russians crossed the border from Russia into Georgia and protected those people who were being attacked uh, by the Georgians, most of whom actually have Russian citizenship, and pushed the Georgians out of that region. And uh, let's face it, the Georgian uh, military isn't really much of a um, an obstacle for the Russian military for lots of different reasons. And so the Russian military pushed the Georgians back, and then they sort of seemed to say, well, I wonder how far we could go. And they kept driving towards the capital of Georgia, Tbilisi. And they got about more than halfway there. And then they sort of stopped because they realized that they could just overrun the country if they wanted to. And they were making a point, um, everyone seems to think, that, you know, we could very easily overrun your whole country. We won't, but we're going to show you that we can. And so there was a military war going on, and then there was a PR war going on. One thing that happened during this whole period during the summer when this was going on that worried me, and I think a lot of people, was you started to see this sort of Cold War rhetoric. Why did that happen? Why is that reemerging now? This Cold War rhetoric is, one, it's, it's sort of what both sides know. You know, it's sort of what they're, they never forgot all those Cold War words. But, you know, the reality is also that, um, you know, the, the Russians probably still see the United States as their I don't want to say biggest enemy, but, you know, the largest power in the world. And, you know, let's not forget that Russia still has a huge nuclear arsenal and is, you know, a, a hugely powerful country with a huge army and a huge military. And, um, you know, the Russians sort of feel they, they that gives them, a, you know, a certain amount of respect that they should be paid by the world community. And when the United States, instead of, you'll notice that there there were mediators in this, they weren't Americans. The main person who came in and mediated this was uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, the president of France. And that's because uh, there's a rotating presidency of the European Union, which France now holds. So he sort of said, okay, I'm going to take the lead here and I'm going to do some shuttle diplomacy and try to get these guys to stop fighting and to implement a peace plan. 
by the time the the war, the fighting was over, um, there was a, a mood in Russia um, that I heard from people like the foreign minister, um, Sergei Lavrov, where he, they didn't even want to talk to the Americans at all. They were just furious at them. And I think that that furor came out just with, with the old Cold War language that the diplomats had never forgotten. I was really shocked to see, I mean, here in the United States on, you know, on major media outlets and coming from the mouths of our leaders, just this this stuff that I hadn't heard since the mid to late 80s. And it just, it like leapt out full blown as if it had just been asleep. I mean, why do you think that that happened on this side? I think that many people here don't really understand Russia. I think that there are so many stereotypes about what Russia is that are just no longer true. Um, for example, you know, I, I spent 14 years living in Russia, and even, you know, two or three years ago, people would ask me questions like, do you have enough to eat? Is there any food in the stores? Do you ha um, hold up a package of cigarettes to uh, stop a ca taxi cab? And, and I sort of had to say, well, you know, actually, no, there are a million supermarkets. We have a place down the street that kind of looks like BJ's Warehouse. It's, you know, a giant food warehouse. And, you know, we've got wine bars now. And, you know, we've got everything. I can buy, you know, grape nuts at my local supermarket if I want to. And and people's understanding of what Russia is was has just really lacked, you know, lag behind reality. And that's I think one of the reasons that this Cold War rhetoric comes back, because people who don't know Russia assume that it's still really the Soviet Union when it's really much more like um a powerful European nation. I mean, Moscow is a city that looks and feels a lot like Paris or Berlin or, or Warsaw, really. That was Nora Flaherty from a 2008 interview with professor and journalist Beth Noble. Next on Fordham Conversations, we hear Mary Wilson's show on transitions. Mary speaks with a stockbroker turned teaching assistant who was in pursuit of meaningful work. If it's possible to take a leap of faith for the dream gig, this next bit is about levitating uncertainly between gigs. George Papadimus never thought he'd have such difficulty lining up a job. For him, the financial crisis is very real. But he talks about its myriad challenges as though they're kind of like merit badges, things to acquire and appreciate as proof of passage. I was working on Wall Street for 20 years as a stockbroker, uh, bond researcher. Was that your dream job when you first got oh, it? Oh, yeah. When I first I saw like uh, Charlie Sheen on Wall Street. I'm saying the movie back in 87, the Buddy Fox. That was... That's the time when I got licensed. Wall Street is our version of Hollywood, the East Coast version. It's geared toward the young. There was a spreadsheet that listed the people who were getting laid off or let go. And it's it was basically geared for people over 40. How big corporations work, when there's an economic downturn, it's perfect opportunity to get rid of the people who are over 40. They're more costly for health insurance they feel they're, they're not as productive as someone coming out of college. Uh, I'm presently a college assistant at John Jay College, where I tutor students in psychology, English, and or in whatever uh, subject they need help in. For me to go back to Wall Street, it's like like the salmon going uh, swimming upstream. It's it's a bigger challenge. It's, my computer's skills aren't as sharp as someone, let's say, 20 years old. They want like you to do Excel spreadsheets, pivot tables, and and so forth at, at record speed. I'm not I'm not cutting edge on that. But you're pretty optimistic. Oh yeah, you have to be. 
life goes on. There's always, you can't, you got to turn uh, the lemons into lemonade. You can't just sit, yeah, you got to move on. That's part of life. I didn't cause this mess. You just got to deal with, you got to do the best you can. When the financial meltdown happened, um, I was trying to reevaluate myself. Where where can I apply my skill set to? And a friend of mine was a professor at John Jay, and he told me there's there's some openings for college assistants. Uh, I've been doing it almost a year now, and, and I enjoy doing it. Unfortunately, the income isn't isn't enough as compared to what I was making on Wall Street. But uh, the energy in the school is phenomenal. Just seeing the the, the students when they come up to me, say, George, can you please help me with my essay? And so, uh, it's it's so enriching for the soul. So it's something you think you might stay in that. Kind I'd of love work? to stay, but uh, John Jay's uh, is funded by the city. They're they're going through budgetary crisis, so I don't know if they're going to renew my contract. I I found something that I like, but it, the money isn't there. So I'm trying to come up with ideas how else I could support myself as well as my family to pay the bills. It's a tough situation. I've actually gone, there's a, a lovely woman by the name of Annette McLaughlin. She works at Career Services. Annette had best, she said, George, the because of the economy, it's giganomics. I said, what do you mean, Annette? I said, yeah, yeah, how you survive and pay bills, you have to get certain gigs, like part-time jobs and piece them together. That's called giganomics. I said, that's cool. That's what I'm trying to do. As I said, I got John Jay. Uh, I'm there four days a week. For six hours and that doesn't make it to cover my bills so i have to find another uh, gig to try to support myself and my family going for your dream job i don't think it's i've never i haven't observed people saying i'm here for to try to get a an idea for my dream job it's basically how do i find a job see the the thing i like about Fordham, they, they have resources here for alumni as well as students and i don't think too enough people are aware of them I met George at a meeting of the Career Continuance Support Group. It's for Fordham alumni who could use some advice with their job searches. The group meets on the last Wednesday of every month. I, I talked to some people, and I, I got this comment a couple times that somebody said it was it's kind of like an AA meeting. That's correct. Yeah, it's kind of weird because you have to introduce, hi, my name is George. I worked on Wall Street 20 years. I'm in this meeting. and Because if you go there regularly, you're, you're somewhat embarrassed about like making this little 10-second or 15-second speech. But... Uh, uh, I thought about it, and then I said, wait a minute, that's how others who are coming here for the first time uh, are learning about you. Like, I've gotten people coming up to me say, yeah, I, I heard you're a college assistant, but you worked on Wall Street. I have a friend of mine. He worked at the financial aid office at so-and-so school. Do you want to contact him? So, yeah, it's inspirational. If I come away with one idea from the, the two-hour session, I'm happy. They know. I said, no, you don't re network by first thing throwing your resume at them. It's not all about you, it's all about the person you're talking to. Okay, that's number one. When you're networking, when you have a networking appointment with someone, you go the same way as if you were going to a job interview. You would be dressed that way. You're gonna be sharp, you're gonna be bright, you're gonna you're, you're going be um, full of vim and vigor, right? What would you wanna remember from this transitional time? Um that it was a storm. The, the, my friend came up with a good analogy. It's a storm out there, and I, I, I stumbled upon a cave just to stay, stay out of the storm. And in this cave, I've, I found a little joy and happiness and, and a positive impact on others. No, I've had impact on other people's lives, the students. Uh, so that, at John Jay. At John Jay, yeah. Being a teaching oh, yeah, assistant. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was part of Mary Wilson's conversation with George Papadinas.
There was also a time when Fordham Conversations was less of a conversation. The Fordham Lecture Series, this one hosted by Mary Hardy, features a speech by Avery Cardinal Dulles. Although this segment was broadcast on February 2002, its topic has shown a needed resurgence. He discusses the peaceful coexistence between religions. From the beginning, we had in this nation a great variety of Christian denominations that regarded one another as mistaken. The American political settlement did not require them to approve of each other's doctrines and practices, but it did insist that they avoid any effort to coerce the members of other denominations to agree with them. In the course of time, the religious scene has become increasingly diverse. It includes many more varieties of Christianity than were originally present. In addition, the nation has welcomed to its shores multitudes of Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus. With rare exceptions, all of these religious groups live peaceably together, not interfering with each other's teaching, life, and worship. The American experiment has worked well enough to offer a possible model for the global international community that is currently experiencing its birth pangs. Vatican II, in its declarations on non-Christian religions and on religious freedom, endorsed this model as suitable for individual nation-states. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. To join the community of WFUV members creating great radio with their financial support, visit our website at WFUV.org. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Oh.